Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at LNXCHK on Twitter. Welcome to the show. This week we have with us Rich Lafferty. He is a staff SRE here at PagerDuty. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's always fun to have insiders on, right? Yeah, it is. It is. We've had a couple on recently. Uh, It's been a a nice uh, addition to our, our stable. So tell us a bit about what you do at PagerDuty. What does a staff SRE do? What does a staff SRE do? Well, I mean, there's kind of two parts to it, right? So yeah, so yeah, I'm staff SRE here. I've been at PagerDuty for about four years, and I've been a staff engineer for about a year. And so you can kind of break it down into two parts. On the SRE side, um, our SRE teams here are essentially responsible for the platform that PagerDuty runs on. You know, we have a lot of engineers, we're not a small place, and uh, what we want to make sure is that the product teams here can focus on delivering product features and, you know, availability and performance, all those non-functional requirements to customers as easy as possible. And so the SRE teams here are basically responsible for sort of setting up a golden path to make sure that that happens. And that's, you know, part of that's the platform. Right now we're running on HashiCorp's Nomad. Um, with some plans to move to Kubernetes in the next little while, just to kind of take advantage of that plot, the sort of the extended ecosystem there, the platform. But still, the important part is the abstractions. You know, we want to make sure the developers don't have to think about the low levels so they can think about the stuff that's the highest leverage for a product team to do. Uh, one of the things that PagerDuty does, of course, is the teams that write software own their software through the whole development lifecycle, including operating it. But the more we can kind of shift away in the abstractions so they don't have to worry about hosts or they don't need to worry about networking or all that stuff, then the better. So that's basically kind of what the uh, what the SRE org does here. And until very recently, I was a, an individual contributor on one of those teams um, working on that platform. Uh, since I moved into the staff, though, I've kind of started thinking a little bit more organizationally. And, you know, a lot less. I, I joke that my editor of choice these days is Confluence. And oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, a lot less kind of doing the work and a lot more the main thing I've been thinking, kind of, kind of thinking about, and working on, how do we do organizational change and cultural change and so on, is in the area of reliability, like really emphasizing the R in SRE. And so yeah, so there's been a bunch of stuff on that. The thing that I've been working on most recently has been on our incident review process, our postmortem process. But that's not exactly the thing we're talking about. I think we're, the thing I was doing before that was making some clarifications here about how we do high availability and disaster recovery. Yes. So for, for folks listening at home, Rich sent out an email to all of us that titled an exegesis on HA and DR. And, and it caught everyone's eye because it's not every day that you get a work email that uses the word exegesis. It's true. It's true. Folks were super interested in what exactly was going on here. So yeah, rethinking HA and DR, like tell the folks out there, like what, what are you working on there? Yeah. So, I mean, so the reason it was an exegesis, um, and I got that word from Larry Wall, who actually, I guess, from Damian Conway from the Pearl community years and years ago, um, when Pearl 6 was first launched, um, that's how long ago we're talking, Larry Wall wrote some apocalypses, i.e. explanations of what was happening in Pearl 6. And then Damian Conway followed those up with exegeses, i.e. deeper explanations yes. of what the heck Larry was talking about. And so a while ago, we published an ADR, an architecture decision record here, about some changes to how we are going to do high availability and disaster recovery. The, the big change, long, long ago, PagerDuty basically ran active-active multi-region. We were in two AWS regions, and we were also in Azure. And 
all of the regions handled traffic at the same time. And the idea was that if we were to lose a region, then the other regions would kind of continue operating. And so the failure domain at that point, you know, if you want to think about it that way, was, you know, that we could have a region failure and not notice. Of course, that's really hard to do. And the reality was quite different from what we had designed because it's really hard to test failing a whole region. Yeah. But also we were spending a lot of time kind of setting things up for the possibility of a region failure. Mm-hmm. And what actually ended up happening, you know, you start looking through the postmortems and so forth, is that regions don't fail very. I mean, knock on wood, I'm I'm fixing this now. But regions don't fail very often. And a lot of other things, of course, do fail because we're running complex systems and complex systems have emergent behavior and all those, all those wonderful things. And so we were spending a lot of engineering time and cognitive time and so on on making sure that this active active region thing. So a while ago, we decided, you know what, that, that doesn't make a ton of sense. Let's, we're going to reframe this a little bit. So we published this architecture decision record a year and a half ago. They basically said, hey, we're going to stop doing this. Oh, the other thing I should mention in there, we're also doing all of our replication synchronously, which you have to do if you're active-active. Well, yeah, because you need all the data in all the places all the you time. You need all the data in all the places all the time. And for a lot of things, we couldn't do... Uh, you know, we couldn't have stale reads and so forth. We wanted, we didn't want eventual consistency yeah. in the middle of one of our customers' incidents, and so they want to they want to see things up to the moment. Um, so there was a lot of overhead, and so we kind of said, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, instead, we're going to focus on running out of a region at a time. Mm-hmm. and a second region is going to be there for disaster recovery. We're not going to do synchronous replication essentially across the WAN, across between regions anymore and so forth. And so we published this, and the challenge was that over time, you know, people have left PagerDuty, new people have arrived and so on. And if you weren't here for what was there before, if you weren't here when we were running MySQL Galera replication across the WAN, if you weren't here when we were running when spanning Cassandra clusters, which I can't say I recommend, then you didn't really have the history of, well, why are we doing it this way? And so it was a good opportunity to kind of reinvest in the ADR and say, all right, so there was a bunch of context that didn't get captured in here. And I'm going to kind of explain this on first principles. What do you need to know about how we think about DHA and DR here? And really kind of explain that, you know, the, like the big thing, the big thing that people don't always get is that uh, high availability, HA, and disaster recovery, DR, are different processes. Absolutely, yes. Right. The big thing kind of came away from that was that to really clarify in people's mind is that fundamentally you're going to use one a lot more than the other. I guess we should probably take a step back and explain to everybody what the heck I'm talking about when I say they're different. So you've got these two things, and they're both about being available all the time, right? That something terrible has happened, and we want to, and we want to stay up. Especially for a company like PagerDuty, where the challenge is being up when our customers are not, are not, and and doing so on the same clouds the customers run on. You know, we're on AWS, and so when we have problems in AWS, our customers probably also have problems in AWS, mm-hmm. and we can't move to another cloud to fix that. Or we'd, I'd be saying the exact same thing, but I'd be saying GCP. Fundamentally, you've got these two things. One is high availability, and that is regular operations. High availability is how you essentially meet your SLOs, so to speak. It's like, how do you engineer software? How do you engineer a distributed system? Because um, we're talking about distributed systems here. This is really just easy. Like to default. Do. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. This is, how do you engineer a distributed system to be available all with a little asterisk? All of the time for whatever value of all. All, yes. You, you've agreed. You, you've agreed. However with. many nines you like, yes. Exactly. So that's it. High availability is what's happening all the time. 
you know, there's the thing that complex systems um, from uh, uh, Richard Cook's paper, uh, how complex systems fail. The complex systems run in degraded mode. They're always failing. There's full of latent failures. And so the thing there is that you sometimes those latent failures are visible and you want to minimize their visibility because <laughs> that's what we call an incident. So high availability is the is applying systems engineering techniques to these complex systems or these distributed systems that we build so that they remain available, even though components of the system might not be. Yeah. Disaster recovery, on the other hand, is, well, I like to say I've kind of slightly tongue in cheek, but also some truth in it. Um, disaster recovery is the thing you do so that when something extremely bad happens, you don't have to fold up the company and go home. Yes. You know, and disaster recovery, of course, is not just a technical thing. The folks over in HR are doing disaster recovery yeah. exercises. The folks in facilities are doing disaster recovery exercises. And ideally, all of these things are coordinated somehow. But really, what you're looking at at disaster recovery is that you've decided that an event is going to happen that is going to be outside the risk that you've taken on in your normal operations. And you want to be able to continue to operate the business after you recover from that. So it's kind of like the, the main difference here, you know, is that high availability is the stuff that's happening all the time. It's the stuff that you engineer in and disaster recovery is to handle the black swan event. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks, as they've been looking at being in the cloud versus being in your own data center, like when you think about back in the day, when you're in your own data center, you had like one place in one location and maybe you were in Loudoun County and you're in San Jose or you were in you know, Secaucus or whatever your, your case might be and moving into the cloud and especially the way AWS is now architected, like it's not that model anymore. Like those availability zones, that region isn't one building anymore. So you get to rethink what the blast radius is of your failure. Yeah. Yeah. Blast radius. It really is blast radius or failure domain. And so, I mean, fundamentally, you still can't get away from physics, right? The speed of light is going to hang you up every time. Yeah, and there are still buildings and there's still servers, even though they're really complicated and cool servers with nitro controllers and stuff like that that we never had when we were in the data center. <laughs> but yeah, really understanding that, for instance, you know, if you're running out of a particular region, let's say US West 2, which is in, is in the Pacific Northwest, that there are particular threats that the Pacific Northwest gets, like earthquakes and forest fires. And even though there's a cloud, those buildings like inside that region are a bunch of availability zones and inside those availability zones are a bunch of physical locations. Yeah. And, you know, if you Google around, you can kind of figure out what those physical locations are, even though AWS doesn't want to let you know. And so you, you still need to handle the case that something, an actual disaster in the like most conventional sense of the word, an actual disaster could occur that will make it so that that area is unrecoverable mm -hmm. or at least, Unrecoverable on the timescale that you're interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so when you think about it that way, like even though, you know, AWS has a bunch of guidelines for sort of thinking about the abstraction of the availability zone and thinking about the abstraction of a region and regions are far apart. And like you mentioned, the speed of light. So there's a certain latency between them. Yeah. So there are definitely for, for regular operations, there are some advantages to running within a region because you don't have to wait for those uh, protons to cross, cross the United States or across Europe or across the Atlantic or anything like that. The advantage, I guess, of thinking about high availability and disaster recovery is different problems, mm -hmm. different but related problems is that one, you get to optimize for normal operations and the other, you get to optimize for that black swan event. Mm hmm. And you don't have to account for one and the other. And I think that was probably the 
what got in our way with the old way of doing things at PagerDuty mm-hmm. when we were doing synchronous replication across, you know, between regions with all those latency, latency hits and so forth and the complexity is that we had conflated them a little bit. And it seems like you can get like an economy of scale there. You can get something free because you, you know, well, why don't we design one architecture that can handle high availability and disaster recovery? And then that basically makes disaster recovery a high availability function. And we don't have to think about having a disaster recovery plan anymore. Mm-hmm. And there, and that's, that is a way of optimizing it, right? That's something that you could, you could decide to do that, but there are costs that come with it. And of course, the biggest cost as an engineering organization grows is always cognitive load. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, like fundamentally, the thing about these complex systems, these distributed systems we're designing is that they're socio-technical systems that contain software and people. And you can program the computer. I mean, there'll be bugs and stuff like that, but it's a lot harder to program the people sometimes. Yes. <laughs> if only. So, yeah. So, some of, so the trade-offs that you make, and everything's always trade-offs. So the trade-offs that you make when you decide to make your HA, your high availability, and your disaster recovery design really tightly coupled is that one is a lot harder than the other. And they have different needs and different requirements and so forth. And you're taking on the cognitive load of doing both at the same time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that when we kind of made that transition and we thought about, well, high availability is what our customers are depending on us every single day. All day, yeah. And disaster recovery is for this black swan event that in all reality will probably never happen, but we still need to have some insurance against. Yes. Then you can use different techniques on both and you can focus on the specific requirements of each that, you know, for instance, in the high availability sphere, a failure needs to be essentially invisible mm-hmm. to customers. Where with a disaster recovery event, then maybe making that visible to customers is fine. Yes. Right? And 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 those trade-offs, and it's not trade-offs that an individual engineer or even necessarily the engineering org can make. Well, no, I mean it, it's gonna you probably want to talk to your your finance department about you know what your insurance will cover and what you're required to do for your business insurance and and all those other things come into it as well. It's not just, okay, well, it's easier for us to replicate in one place or the other. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, that's like also this all ties into like sort of senior business leadership. If that's going up to your VP and your CTO and your CEO and so forth going, all right, so here we need to make some trade-offs and they're big trade-offs. They are. Um, you know, in what direction do we want to take this? Yeah, and and like you can, it's kind of funny because like for some of the the stuff you can, you can get really dark with your dr planning like climate change being a a thing that that Mm, we mm -hmm. we sort of know about right like are your east coast data centers going to be partially underwater at any time like sandy wasn't expected but like those of us who had data centers in downtown manhattan know that you know you can only take so much diesel fuel up the stairs when your data center is on the 20th floor and data center alley in loudon county gets tornadoes from time to time Mm -hmm, i mean mm -hmm. all that stuff is is out there. So yeah, it's a it's a really hard decision to figure out where to put your, your resources and to apply the, the money and the and the time to figure out what needs to happen next. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And it's easy to focus on natural disasters because that's when you think about the word disaster, that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind. And you have to think about natural disasters as well, especially, you know, we do have a tendency to put data centers in places that are maybe not, you know, where they put them in the Bay Area. 
or you put them in the Pacific Northwest, or you put them again in like where the hurricanes hit on the East Coast. I recently moved out to uh, move from Toronto to Nova Scotia, and so I'm in I'm in the way of hurricanes now, yeah. and so I'm kind of getting used to that. But there's a lot of other things that could happen that would threaten the continuity of the business. Mm-hmm. And I guess the other phrase, the phrase that goes along with disaster recovery, is often business continuity. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the key to the difference between those two things, really, if you think about it. High availability is primarily to serve your customers. Mm-hmm. Disaster recovery and business continuity is serving your customers, but it's also serving the continuity of the business. And the customers, of course, are relying on the business continuing, but so are a lot of other people. Yeah. All your stakeholders, all your shareholders, all yeah, of those Yeah, exactly. Folks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So as you're playing with these things and, and you're, you're making, I love the, the golden path idea. So kind of thinking about making the easiest way to do things the best way, what kind of tools and day-to-day guidance do you give the rest of the engineering team for sort of applying these in their regular practice? Right. So, I mean, one of the reasons, it's funny, if you want to kind of dive down into the tech, one of the reasons that we're in the process of migrating from the HashiCorp ecosystem, Nomad and Console and so forth, uh, to Kubernetes is just that there is a huge ecosystem around it. And because a lot of kind of handling the, you know, the especially on the high availability part, there's a bunch of just kind of like standard practices like using circuit breakers and mm-hmm. rate limiting and load shedding that are just something that you need. I mean, they're not easy to implement and they're not easy to get right, but they're still a thing that you can implement. And as much as possible, if we can make that, what we don't want is for every team here to build those things into their into their software by hand. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're using whichever HTTP library you may be using, and it's got a bunch of things for retries and exponential backoff and so on, and that's all yep. great. But then the problem you have there is you scale up to hundreds of people in your engineering org and dozens of microservices and so forth, is that you start losing the inconsistency and a lot of people are thinking about the details of this stuff and they could be thinking of things that are more directly relevant to customers if we could abstract it away. So that's where, let's say, a service mesh comes in, right? I mean, obviously, it turns a service mesh. There's kind of two ways to do it. You can do it in, in libraries. You can do it in infrastructure. Yeah. If you introduce a service mesh and you have this basically consistent proxies between all of your services, then that's a place where you can globally introduce a lot of those controls, a lot yeah. of those techniques to make sure that things stay available. And you can ship with some good defaults. Um, shipping with good defaults is a huge piece of reducing cognitive load. And and yeah, and then service teams that are implementing a new service, since there is a service mesh between everything and they only need to tap into it, then they get a bunch of stuff for free. Mm-hmm. Um, the other way to do it, of course, if you aren't in a position where you can just roll it to service mesh, and we're not yet, we're not quite there yet. Okay. You can do it in libraries. And and some of this is policy and some of this is technology. You, mm-hmm. you, know, you say if you're going to be using... You know, HTTP connections or gRPC connections or whatever you may be using, uh, Thrift connections, God forbid, then you say, well, you need to use this internal library and that library is a wrapper for all of these things that I've been talking about, yeah. but that they happen inside the application. Of course, the disadvantage of doing things with libraries is then you all of those teams that I mentioned and all of those microservices need to track a certain version of a library. And when yeah. you need to roll it a change, then a bunch of teams need to rebuild their software and so forth. And if you do it in a service mesh, the advantage is that you can get all of those changes right away. And the disadvantage is that you can get all of those changes right away. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that play for the, the sort of service ownership model that we have? How, how much knowledge do our 
uh, application engineers need to have of the underlying components and how much sort of falls to your team to take care of on a day-to-day basis? It varies. It varies. One of the things you want to watch out for, and variability, I mean, I mentioned the cognitive load is an enemy for high. And the other thing, of course, and this applies to a lot more than just high availability, like this is just sort of building engineering teams, is, so cognitive load is one. And the second thing is, you know, is variability, where a lot of, you'll look at your organization and you'll see that a bunch of teams are doing well and a bunch of other teams aren't doing well. And then you kind of dig in, you go, oh, those teams are doing well. They happen to have these particular engineers that have a bunch of experience in this. Because what you really can't do is you can't count on individuals lifting. Mm-hmm. You can do in, you know, in, in a 10 person engineer, engineering org, you can absolutely count on individuals in a 50 person engineering org. I mean, you need to formalize a little bit more, but you can still make sure that the right people are working on the right things. When you get into the hundreds, um, let alone the thousands and bigger, then you can't necessarily rely on that anymore. And so there's actually a great example here. We rolled out Terraform um, a few years ago. Before we had Terraform, engineers were poking around in the AWS console. Uh, It's just like everybody everybody (laughs) starts there. That's where you have to start, right? Everyone starts there. Yes. And we went, well, this isn't very reproducible and we no. don't, have, and we also had, you know, some compliance requirements about having, we would depend on peer reviews as an approval as part of our, rather than having a change board. Yeah. Peer reviews are one of our contr- compliance controls for things. So, so like, how can we make sure that infrastructure changes are reproducible, uh, have a history and have compliance controls attached to them? And while Terraform is an obvious, well, infrastructure as code generally yeah. is an obvious way to do that. You can use CloudFormation, you can use Polymy. We use Terraform. And it was great. We rolled out Terraform. We wrote a bunch of individual modules on like, so here is the PagerDuty way to use S3. Here is the PagerDuty way to use autoscaling groups and so on. And so people were not only were they doing infrastructure as code, but they also were able to get a whole bunch of defaults in place. Mm-hmm. This is the way you have to encrypt S3 buckets. Um, this is the way that you know provisioning an instance works. So plug that into your autoscaling group and, and things will automatically join clusters and stuff like that. But we actually introduced a new problem. And the new problem we introduced is that suddenly all of the engineers at PagerDuty had to know Terraform. Yes. On one hand, cognitive load went down a little bit because there was a history of infrastructure changes and people didn't have to poke around the console to figure out what was going on. On the other hand, it went up because now there was a new technology that, you know, admittedly, Terraform has some sharp edges that everyone had to understand. You know, kind of the things that people run into with infrastructure as code all happen. With Terraform, mm-hmm. it's state management. Yep. Um, there's always the problem of, well, I need to remove one thing and I accidentally removed another thing, right? Like they're really easy mistakes to make. So the next step in terms of golden path here is to make it so that we can have all of those benefits without having hundreds of people all having to learn Terraform. And so the way that we're doing that basically is to increase the level of abstraction. Mm -hmm. So it used to be that there was really no abstraction on AWS. And if you wanted an S3 bucket, you went in and you clicked the button to give you an S3 bucket. And maybe there was a wiki page that told you how you should configure it. Maybe there wasn't. So then we moved to Terraform. You get to use this module and so forth. We're actually moving back to abstracting away to, I just need an S3 bucket, please. Okay. Just give me an S3 bucket. Mm-hmm. And how that's actually going to look, I'm not really sure yet. I know that yeah. we've got a team that's been playing with backstage, okay. but somehow or other, there will be something that where it is basically push button, receive yeah. S3 bucket. And then under the hood, we have all the things that we need to implement that in a repeatable and auditable and so forth way. Yeah. But let's make it so that we don't have to write Terraform code anymore. I mean, I say push button, but it'll probably be something more like a high level configuration file that says, give me a bucket named this with replication. Yeah. 
And then you don't need to worry about the details of Terraform and of providers and of state management because something takes care of that all for you. And so you just lift that application up even further. And then if a team does need something special, because there's always a team that needs something, you know, that needs to kind of go outside the golden path. It's not, there are no fences, it's just a golden path. Then they can drop down a level and do some Terraform. Mm-hmm. We'll recommend against it. We'll yeah. still support it. But just getting that abstraction level right so that they don't have to worry about those details. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it's one of the things that, that we're, we're always trying to impart to people is that you want to focus your resources on the things that are your core competencies. You're, you're building a product for your users. We don't want you to spend a lot of time trying to figure out on an every, everyday basis for every single team, the specialized components of these S3 settings or God forbid I am or, or any of those, <laughs> those crazy things. God forbid I am. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I've been through I am training and I'm still like, I, whatever. Okay, fine. But like, yeah, focus your time on building better experiences for your customers and spend less time dealing with the minutia of all of this stuff. What I, I'm assuming it's going to do for your engineers too, then, like you're taking away sort of this hands on keyboard experience with a product, the product being AWS, but like giving them more of a conceptual idea of here's why you're going to use a cloud provider for these things. So that if we do have to move those lower level pieces, the abstraction's still there and they can still say, I need an object store, I need a scaling group. That's exactly it. And, you know, AWS calls that thing undifferentiated heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I think it's a great metaphor, right? It's like undifferentiated meaning you're not going to get a competitive advantage out of doing it. I mean, heavy lifting is just, it's, it's work. But the undifferentiated part is really the important part. Another thing that we have to make sure that teams kind of have a, is exactly what you said, a menu of things. Mm-hmm. We call our platform standards list where there's, if you want a database, there you go. <laughs> if you want a database, <laughs> Well, then, you know, it's it's like if you want, you can have any color as long as it's black. You can have any database as long as it's MySQL. And that's backed by having a bunch of MySQL experts and a yeah. bunch of making it really easy to do that. With, of course, exceptions coded in, well, coded in the policy, in the process, to allow teams to say, hey, we're doing something different. Mm-hmm. Write up a design doc and you can kind of propose, well, we, want to, we need to use something else for this. And sometimes the argument works, sometimes the argument doesn't work, but there's at least that, that amount of flexibility. It's definitely been a challenge here to kind of, as we've grown and we've grown fast and, you know, it's just like, like a lot of companies like PagerDD are also growing very fast. And at some point the, of like the, the, you know, there's this, I can't remember the name of the triangle, but there's a triangle which has autonomy and mastery and purpose. Mm-hmm. These are the things that kind of challenge people in their job day to day. Right. These are the things that people value. And I find that engineering often overemphasizes the autonomy part, that it's very important for teams to be able to choose their own thing. Yeah. As you grow, you need to kind of balance away from that the absolute autonomy thing towards the efficiencies of basically economies at scale. Yeah. Finding that balance is always a challenge. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, just to kind of tie this back into the high availability side of things, the more you can kind of make resources available to teams, the more you can make just building blocks that you can plug together to get this for free, the less time teams have to think about building, say, I don't know, a durable queue. <laughs> and the yeah, more they can right. spend building a really good incident response platform. Yes, please. <laughs> and I, and that I, unfortunately, the queue example is not, is, is not fictional. Early, in early in PagerDuty history, we built our own. Now, this is, PagerDuty has been around for 
12, 13, 14 years now. And so it wasn't as simple as just take Kafka off the shelf and so forth back then. But that's it. We definitely overemphasized on the build it yourself thing in the early days, as did a lot of other companies. Absolutely. And with that came some cognitive load. We did some really cool stuff. And I honestly, a lot of that cool stuff was probably attractive to early engineers that train pager duty. Um, and that's an element and was probably also attractive to, you know, early investors because they could see what we could do and stuff like yep. that. So there's a lot of things for the business, but it eventually got in the way. Yeah. Um, now we use Kafka. <laughs> right. <laughs> right now we use Kafka. We're going to pull the box off the shelf and we're going to plug it into the thing and it's all going to be fine. And then we don't have to worry about it ourselves. Because it's undifferentiated heavy lifting. Having a, like people aren't buying pager, you know, customers aren't signing up for pager duty because we've got a really good queue. No, right? Netflix just like don't even care. And like as we discuss things like features in the product, like business services with customers, like the reports that are coming in from your users aren't that you're like you're saying you're, not that your queue is slow, right? It's like that's not what they're seeing. So you have to get that language around what matters to the customers and what's actually important. That's exactly it. Awesome. Well, we're just about at our time. Um, we have a couple of questions that that we like to ask folks. Um, one of them, I think we've probably covered if you have a, a myth to debunk about like rolling back to HA and DR. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the debunk. I mean, I think the main one there is that HA and DR are the same thing, right? That's really where people start to get confused. And it's a choice you can make. It's a very specific strategic choice you can make to use the same processes for both. But I think that's going to get in your way. Yeah, definitely. And then one other one that, that we, we sometimes throw at folks is like, What's one thing you wish you had maybe known sooner about all of this that maybe you learned the hard way or didn't know the deep secrets of until something maybe bad had happened? Oh, boy. Um, that one's actually really easy. And that's the the whole thing that you can't take the people out of the system. Ah, okay. You know, you have to design these things to a lot of people go, well, if we could get rid of the human element, then things would just work. If only. If, if only, right? <laughs> let's just let's just eliminate human error. Yeah. Uh-huh. Especially when it comes to the availability side of things, the idea that, you know, it's true that a lot of incidents are caused by changes. Sure. Are triggered by changes. Triggered by changes. But the response side is is and a lot of companies are like, oh well, we need fewer changes. Why don't we ship change fewer changes to make them bigger? Oh no, okay, no, that's not going to work. But the idea there was usually this idea is you need to build a system that can defend itself from humans making mistakes. And it turns out that a lot of what you're actually doing is building systems where the humans tend to be the thing that keeps it running. Yeah. And so really, as you're kind of building this all, building this all in, acknowledging that the operators of the system are a component of the system and that you need to not just account for them, but embrace the fact that the, you know, one of the, the, the complex systems are always failing and the operators of the systems are an important component in preventing that failure from going from being latent to being customers. It took me a long time to get my head around that because obviously you want to build software that doesn't need that. But when it comes down to it, if you're building a complex distributed system, you can't. You can't get away from it. You can't get away now. from it. You absolutely yeah. can't get away from it. It's not It's not an option. It's like it's the people version of wanting to have both consistency and availability, right? Yes. It's just like that's sort of like there's a menu of two things, not three things. And it's the same way with this. It's just like you can't design the people out of the system. No, maybe the in the far future, the promise of AI, maybe, but by then we're all like soft little blobs floating around on chairs or whatever, but it's certainly not our reality right now. So for one parting piece, do you have any piece of advice for, for engineers that are out there on this journey, the things that they should be thinking about? Um, that's a good one. I mean, honestly, 
There's a lot of thought in, so two things, I would say two things. Um, the, the short thing is read the literature, right? Like that's the little thing is, you know, get into the habit of reading. I'm not saying big computer science papers, but there's a lot written out there about sort of the basics of how to do high availability, like mm -hmm. the actual implementation details, which we didn't really talk about a whole lot in this call. AWS has a thing on their website called the Builders Library, which has a bunch of papers by their, you know, principal and distinguished engineers and solutions architects and so forth, which have a lot of gems in them that are really accessible. And there's also the other piece of that is that there's been a ton of writing, especially on the like the cognitive human factors in other industries. And software tends to have a tendency to think that well, you know, we're uh, we're special. No one else has ever encountered these problems before. But it turns out that a lot of industries have encountered these problems. Absolutely have, yes. Even though they're not necessarily software running in the cloud. Yeah. Kind of getting the learnings and understanding that some of the stuff that we think is a hard problem is a solved problem in other industries. Yeah. Or at least that the thinking in other industries has moved far beyond where software has kind of got to on first principles. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to think about software as being sort of immature, but as an industry, it absolutely is. And cloud computing is an absolute infant. Absolutely. And there's huge advantages to that. And there's disadvantages as well. Yeah, we don't have to make everybody else's mistakes, but only if we know about them. That's exactly it. Well, Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. So uh, we're signing off. We'll see you again in two weeks, folks. Thank you. My name is Mandy Walls, and I'm wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Pager to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. Thank you so much for joining us and remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.